Grab your Bibles, John chapter 4. We're in the second week, as you know, of our Belief Barrier series. And uh, today is going to be good. Not because I've said so, but because God's Word is amazing. And I'm hoping that wherever you're at today, as you come in, you feel like God has unconditional love for you and wants to draw you, wherever you're at on your spiritual journey, into a deeper faith with him. We're, we're looking at the Gospel of John, seven stories from people's lives who had what we're calling belief barriers, things that were blocking them from true belief. And last week we looked at one that I've struggled with most of my life, religion, religiosity, this concept that you can earn your way back to God. And we looked at John chapter 3, the story of Nicodemus. Today's story, though, the woman at the well, I believe is probably the most relevant story in our culture. We live in a culture that is saturated with sexual immorality And for the most part, the church has been silent on this issue. And the only time we see it is when the news pops up and there's a religiously that's prominent who has fallen into sexual immorality. I want to say in my 25 years of youth ministry, working with youth and young adults, there are two reasons why I found Students go to college and walk away from their faith. The number two reason is the problem of evil. If there's a good God, why is there evil? Why is the world such a mess? And it's an understandable question. We'll spend another Sunday talking about it, but real quickly, Christianity is the only religion that believes Jesus is doing something and has done something about the mess. But the number one reason college students walk away from their faith is for a desire for sexual freedom, sexual immorality. There is nothing that will destroy your faith faster and deeper, that will dull your spiritual desire that is wired in you by God and for God than sexual immorality. And I know that there's a silent plague rummaging through men and women's hearts. I know the detriment in marriage and relationships with sexual immorality and impurity and pornography. And we're going to talk about these things, but I got to start by saying something very clearly to you. As your pastor, the the point of the sermon and the point of the story today and in context is not condemnation. If you're sitting here today and you're like, oh man, we picked a, why didn't we just stay home and garden? I get it. If you're struggling in this area, which affects every single one of us because the culture we live in. We're supposed to live in the world as followers of Jesus, not of the world. But in regards to this, we live in and of, and it's acceptable. And it's becoming more and more misdefined and misunderstood human sexuality and sexual 
immorality. This message is not to bring condemnation to you, but freedom from. It's not to judge you. I'm not up here with a heart that wants to judge you for your struggle or your sin or your addiction. But I believe that God's word is gonna clearly show us how Jesus came to set us free from sin, all sin, including sexual immorality. God designed sex. He created it. And God is a good God. He's given us a good gift in our sexuality. And he's designed it to enjoy and bring glory to him. It's an amazing gift. But one of the things you learn is from the gifts of God from scripture is that the greater the gift, the more capacity it has for damage. I'm hoping that you'll move beyond this morning the physicalness of sex into divine, a divine understanding of what it means to be satisfied and fulfilled. This is called intimacy, and it goes beyond the physical of sex. The story, the woman who has an amazing encounter with Jesus. So grab your Bibles. If you haven't, turn to John chapter 4. I encourage you to bring your Bible. And if you did this morning, open to John chapter 4. Grab a pen. Make some notes. Read these for yourself. And I'm even going to say, if you're using a digital device, good, I understand it. I use a digital device too. But more as I get more and more as I get older, I think there's something very imperative about holding a physical Bible and not making it an idol, but being able to see and write and, and work with the word of God directly. This woman has an encounter with Jesus that gives us five crucial principles. There's a command, there's a correction, there's conviction. When you have an authentic encounter with Jesus, there's always conviction, which leads to a confession, and then her life is changed. John chapter four, starting in verse three, he, Jesus, left Judea to depart for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Heidi already already hit this. That was kind of hard to say. Heidi already hit this. Say that. I say that a lot. She hits me all the time, but it's not in my notes. Stick to the notes. He had to pass through Samaria. Here's a little context. The Samaritans were a small, hated community. They were hated by the Jews. This goes back thousands of years when God's people split into two, the north and the south. The northern kingdom gave into and embraced the Assyrians, marrying them, integrating into their culture. They became in and of the culture around them, which is not good. They became called the Samaritans. The southern kingdom of Israel thought of themselves as the only true Israel, the only true people of God left. They viewed the Samaritans as compromisers and half-breed. And so they fought and they hated and they avoided each other. There was so much animosity between these two groups of people that if you were traveling north, to the northern part of Israel, rather than go through Samaria if you were a Jew, you would go around, which would add six days to your journey.
There were no business class jets to go over that one. They had to avoid it for two reasons. It wasn't safe. They could get killed. But number two, the Jew did not want to defile himself before God. So they believed. So he came, verse 5, to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field where that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting at the well. It was the sixth hour. Quick note, we see the humanity of God, 100% human. He's weary from his travel. We also know as we read through this, he's 100% God. The stage is set here for Jesus to be in the right place. This isn't luck. This is providence. God's sovereignty. He's in the right place at the right time to have an encounter with the Samaritan woman. Here's the encounter. The woman from Samaria came to draw water Jesus said to her, give me a drink. We know that it was the middle of the day. We know from later in the story, as you're going to see, she had multiple relationships, multiple husbands. She had defiled herself. She was an outcast even in her own people. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it? that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you have a pen, would you underline this? If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. If you knew who it was talking to you, you would ask. You'd never be thirsty again. He would give you living, wing, 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 need here. She's thinking on the physical realm. But of course, as we know, Jesus is always looking at the heart. He's always looking how to get on the inside and work out. He is not interested in you cleaning up your life or having a bunch of rules that will clean you up from the outside in. That doesn't work. That was Nicodemus' problem. There's a physical need here. Listen, sex is not just a physical thing. Our culture says that sex is just for the body. Or it's just like the body. Biologically, you need to eat. You need to take a nap. But the Bible has a much clearer and different picture when it comes to how we view sex. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. It's different than any other sin. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality put, uh, a, but the sexual immorality, the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? 
you have from God. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Bible talks about sex being a profound union between two people, a husband and a wife. Paul says that this is a mystery. Matt Chandler, defining the word dode, intimacy, defines this oneness as the mingling of the souls. C.S. Lewis, who writes some very deep things about faith, Christianity, life, in the gospel, also has a little bit of a sense of humor. When he said, when someone wants to have sex with you outside of marriage, they're saying to you, I want union with your body, but not you. He went on to say, a guy who wants to have sex with a girl without marrying her is like a person who wants to taste food, but doesn't want the calories from it, so he regurgitates it. Chew and spit. It's a serious issue. Sex is not just a physical thing. Paul's saying, whether it's in your mind or whether you actually carry it out in an act, it's a sin against your own body. Sexual sin destroys your walk with God. It tears apart your soul your capacity for a healthy, committed relationship. Now, listen, I don't know where you're at. Some of you may be in the depths of despair, even hearing those words, but I want to remind you as we move on about the foundation of our faith that a man was dead and came back to life to redeem us from sin. And so wherever you're at, you are not too far from God's power that is shown even in the resurrection to restore you. Sex is not just a physical thing. Sex is driven by a soul desire or a thirst from within. At the heart of sexual sin is idolatry, selfishness. Every sin is birthed out of this desire for self, self-gratification, Our craving comes like a vacuum from within because we have replaced on the throne of our heart through sin, God. And so there's this soul desire from within. Tim Keller says that the state of the soul is thirsty, is parched, you think about that. You look in your life and your heart and your, your mind and you're going to say, I get that. I have these desires. Sometimes I don't know where they come from, but they're always pursuing physical things, but there's something deeper. This is the state of our soul. We thirst for love. We want a perfectly accepting, unconditional love. So we look to that in our parents and then in others. We thirst for purpose, to know that we are important and that we matter to somebody. We thirst for peace in our conscience. This is why guilt sets in. This is why when one goes off to college, they either have to choose 
to change their beliefs or sear their conscience. We look for these answers all throughout our lives in different things. None of them satisfy this thirst. There's only one who gives perfect love, and it's God. There's only one who can give real purpose, and it's God. There's only one who can declare you innocent and wipe away your guilt and shame, and it's God. It's the Messiah. Verse 11, the woman said, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. She's still in the physical realm. This well is deep. Where are you going to get living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as his sons and his livestock. And Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks this, of this water will thirst again. You have this deep thirst in your soul. You keep coming to this well and you're, you're thirsty. It never satisfies. But the one, verse 14, who drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. I wonder what was racing through her mind. As she's still on the physical side of things, going, oh, I don't ever have to come here out of shame in the middle of the day. I'm never going to be thirsty again. I want that physical water. He says, you will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will come in him Become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, the bad news is our sin nature drives us away from God. Our desire and thirst drive us away from God. But the good news is the gospel frees us from those frivolous pursuits that never satisfy. The gospel frees us from sexual immorality and being, and she has gone to the well of romance, security, satisfaction. She's gone to the well of romance for value and she has not found it. And she's stuck in a cycle. He gives a command, go get your husband, and then it exposes through the correction, the truth. You know how often we don't like being corrected? She must be feeling that because she does what oftentimes we all do. She changes the subject. The woman said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Verse 20. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Worship wars. You thought it just happened, you know, in our culture today. I don't like that music. I don't like the sound of that. That's not right. She's trying to change the subject. You see, the Samaritans... They only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as authority. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. I'm sorry, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you're taking notes. <laughs> you don't know this now, but I'm arguing in my own head with me, myself. That's all they accepted. And so they chose to worship on Mount Gerizim. But the Jews accepted the whole Old Testament canon. That's all the rest of the Old Testament. 
as well as the first five books. And they recognize Jerusalem as the place where they should worship. They're, they're missing the point on where you worship because it's a heart issue. So just in the moment where she tries to change the subject, she changes the subject without changing the subject. It's a heart issue. And so he continues to address the heart, the human dilemma to be known and to be loved. A true heart desires, it thirsts for worship. It's created to worship God. She's not able to change the subject. She expanded the topic to cover the point. And she's going to see it in just a second. She's going to see it in a way that changes everything. This correction leads to conviction. Jesus exposes this when he says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. If you have your own Bibles, underline it. It's the tipping point. It's crucial. True worshipers aren't going to look at all the exterior things, all the rituals. There's going to be something going on in their heart. Something in their spirit because of the truth. That's going to change everything. True worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. That time is coming. Spirit does not refer to the Holy Spirit. It refers to the human spirit in response to the truth of God. Now the spirit is at work and moving It's not void of that, but it's worship from an internal, not an external conformity. True worship starts in the heart, in the mind. The truth calls for the heart of worship to be consistent with what the scripture teaches and centered on the word. This is so important. You're taking the focus off of yourself and all the externals. And you're focusing on the truth of God and response to him out of your love for him. You have to be careful of the extremes of dead orthodoxy where there's truth. We cannot be this church where it's just, here's what the Bible says, and there's no spirit or emotion or love or affection dead orthodoxy, and the opposite danger is passionate heterodoxy, where there's spirit and passion, and it's just lovey, lovey, love, and there's no truth. It's reckless. Yes, I said lovey, lovey, dove. (laughs) Write it in your notes. This conviction 
leads to the confession. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. She knew. She just didn't believe yet. She had a belief barrier. She knew he was coming. She had a different concept of the type of liberating that he was going to do. She says, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Circle the word he in your Bible and then take your pen and scratch it out. It's not in the original language. It's okay. It's not a sin. It's only a sin to write in somebody else's Bible. Right, Heidi? That was our first marriage argument, by the way. She wrote notes in my Bible. I'm going, what's this? He, the word he is not in there. I know. She was writing notes. Man. The word he is not in the text. The Lord actually said this. I who speak to you am. Oh, is right. The I am statement. It's all throughout or very common in the gospel, in this gospel. 23 times, I am. Powerful words. I'm the Messiah. I am Yahweh. I am God. I'm the Lord. This is a divine declaration. The woman hears this, and we see that something changes. This confession leads to a change. Just when the disciples were on their way back, verse 27, they marveled that he was talking with this woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, verse 29, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? With prudence and respect, she tactfully asks the men or the people, is this not the Christ? The Greek construction of this sentence is a question that implies or describes her conversion with Jesus and humbly, humbly defers the question of his identity to them. She's not saying he is the Christ. She's putting it on them to wrestle with it. She knows he is. Her eyes have been opened. The belief barrier is gone. You see, Jesus knew she'd never have the ability to break free from what was holding her captive until she felt the embrace of God that is better than what was captivating her. He showed up in the encounter. He spoke truth with compassion and grace. He corrected her, led to conviction, and change.
Verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Quote, she said, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. And then those that believe, look at what they say to the woman. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Brothers and sisters, do you know and see personally that Jesus is the Savior of the world who came so that you no longer selfishly thirst for things that could never satisfy and that lead you farther and farther away from the God that created you for himself? Do you see that? I just have a couple more things to say in closing. And with these few things, there's nothing I want more for you than to have this same encounter that this woman had with Jesus. To allow his love and his grace, his life and his death and his resurrection to transform you and give you eternal life. You see, salvation is clearly spelled out in this story, in this encounter. Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well illustrates, I think, three non-negotiable truths about salvation. That if they're not declared in church or in person, the gospel has not been proclaimed. That oftentimes I find myself even missing as I share Christ with people these non-negotiables that are recorded here. The first one is salvation comes only to those who recognize their desperate need for spiritual life. The living water will be received only by those who realize that they are spiritually thirsty. What I mean by that is you have to realize that you're dead in your sin. And then two, salvation only comes for those who realize they're dead in their sin and who confess that sin and repent it and desire forgiveness and grace. Jesus promises that he will forgive and he will separate your sin as far as the east is from the west. It is your sin that he took on the cross. This isn't some distant, disconnected thing. It's personal. It's specific. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And salvation comes to those who embrace Jesus as their Messiah, the one who bore their sin and saved them. Acts 4, there is Nowhere else and no one where you can find salvation. Will you encounter 
Will you have this encounter? Will you accept this encounter? It's to all. But I have to say one final thing. Because as I've talked about this at camps and interacted and counseled youth and young adults and adults, I know there are some who are so deep in shame and guilt that can't see past the gift of grace. I I know God forgives me, they'll say or they'll think, and you may be one of those today, but I can't forgive myself. I don't want God's forgiveness. I'm so shamed with myself. And if that's you, I plead with you. I exhort you. I encourage you to walk away from that belief barrier. That is a false belief. Essentially, what you're saying is, Jesus didn't quite suffer enough. I need to suffer too. I understand that. But Jesus came to free you from guilt and shame and suffering. He is enough. He is sufficient. Let God's irresistible grace that you have not earned and that you don't deserve, that I haven't earned and that I don't deserve, be so irresistible that you accept it as a gift, a free gift. Jesus is offering living water so that you thirst no more. Will you Wherever you're at in regards to sin, whether it's sexual sin or anger or wickedness or other forms of addiction, lying, whatever it is, will you allow God's grace to redeem you just like the woman at the well allowed God's grace to change her? As we close, I'm going to invite you to stand for the public reading of Scripture. And as we read these verses, read and listen with your heart and your mind. Listen to God's word, his voice to you. Steve Lawson said, if you want to hear the voice of God audibly, then read the Bible out loud. And so we're going to read it. We believe in the authority of scripture and that these are the very words of God and we're challenging our congregation to memorize these specific words. We read them last week. We're gonna read them again. John 3, 16, which most of us probably know or have seen on TV but haven't read up to 21. These are the words of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he did not believe in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that Works have been carried out in God. John three sixteen through 21. These are the very words of God.